Welcome to the Residents and Fellows audio podcast. This is Shobhana Rajan, staff anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Being an anesthetic for a neurological procedure has its own considerations, but how should we protect the brain when a patient comes for a non-neurological surgery but his neurological outcome is at risk? This is a very important topic and often one which is not frequently discussed. Today we will discuss the management of a patient with traumatic brain injury coming for an orthopedic procedure like a femoral fracture fixation. And our expert today is Dr. Letta Matthews who is associate professor of clinical anesthesiology at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She is the interim division director and clinical director of neuroanesthesia at Vanderbilt. Her main interests are in functional neurosurgery, traumatic brain injury, and neuroanesthesia education. On behalf of the Education Committee of the SNAC, we extend a very warm welcome to her. Welcome, Dr. Matthews. Thank you, Dr. Rajan. It's my pleasure. Our first question to you is, how common is traumatic brain injury in polytrauma patients? A good question. Um, it is actually quite common to see traumatic brain injury in patients with motor vehicle, uh, in uh, uh, motor vehicle accidents. And as you know, mo- a lot of the polytrauma patients uh, come as a result of motor vehicle crash, and they have uh, traumatic brain injury associated with the polytrauma. So the incidence of traumatic brain injury in polytrauma patients varies from 35 to 58% according to some studies. And, mm-hmm. and uh, TBI is a major cause of death um, and disability across the world. In the U.S. alone, uh, about 1.5 million Americans sustain traumatic brain injury, according to the CDC data. And about 50,000 of those people die, and several more uh, survive with significant disabilities. Mm, I see. Thank you for giving us an idea of its epidemiology. Now, our next question to you is, how do we assess the severity of TBI? So historically, TBI was classified as mild, uh, moderate, or severe using the Glasgow Comma Scale. So the Glasgow Comma Scale is divided into three components, as we all know, the eye opening, verbal response, and motor responses. So a total score is obtained from the summation of the individual scores in these categories. And a Glasgow comma score of 13 to 15 is defined as mild TBI, 9 to 12 as moderate, and 3 to 8 as severe. There are many other criteria being used to assess severity of TBI, such as Mayo criteria, but um, many of them use uh, the you know other criteria such as loss of consciousness, post-traumatic amnesia, skull fracture, and evidence of neurologic uh, neuroradiological abnormalities in the MRI and CT, such as a subdural hematoma or cerebral contusion or other hemorrhagic contusions. Sure. Does the GCS scoring system predict outcome? It has some prognostic value in predicting outcome, not on its own, but when it is combined with other factors such as patient's age and pupillary response, etc. But by itself, uh, its value is limited. Okay. But it does help kind of, you know, uh, kind of convey uh, a message to the medical team Mm. when you talk about Glasgow Coma Score. Right. 
So during the pre-operative visit, what critical information should be should be obtained before you consider taking the patient to the operating room for fixing his femoral fracture? Uh, of course, in addition to our usual HNP that we do in every single patient, the past medical history and family history, history of previous anesthesia, it is important to extend uh, to determine the extent of intra and extracranial injuries. The mechanism of intracranial injury as well as the current neurologic status and any other ongoing non-neurologic injuries uh, such as abdominal trauma, chest trauma, which is very common in um, polytrauma patients. Also look for the other orthopedic injuries that might be sustained during this uh, motor vehicle crash. So we would you know, definitely want to talk to the trauma ICU team the bedside nurses to get an up-to-date status. A lot of information that is not in the patient's chart can be obtained when we visit the patients on their bedside and talk to the bedside mm -hmm. nurse because patients' conditions can change, you know, pretty quickly over a very, over very short periods of time and all that may not have been already documented. So, yeah, it is important to get an up-to-date history, the admission Glasgow Comma Score, the present neurologic status, all this will help us establish the severity of TBI. And if you, you know, if the Glasgow Coma Score is less than eight, it would be important to determine the ICP, intracranial pressure, to help guide our management. So, and if the patient is suspected to have high intracranial pressure, it would be definitely prudent to get neurosurgical consultation if it, if it has not been obtained already. I see. So if you decide not to proceed, how would you temporize the situation? Now, is there a timeline for waiting to ensure good outcomes? Very, very good question. You know, there are studies that looked at patients with orthopedic injuries, you know, early versus late studies. But in a patient with intracranial hypertension, um, with intracranial pressures consistently over 22 millimeters of mercury, that is the current definition of you know, by the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines, um, it would be, you know, good to just pause and think about the feasibility of surgical intervention in that state. Um, so, you know, think about other things, like is the patient hemodynamically unstable? Is the, you know, blood pressure, mean arterial pressure worrisome? And so we have to think about cerebral perfusion pressures, right? So an important role in patients with TBI is to prevent secondary brain injury resulting from hypotension, decreased cerebral perfusion pressure, hypoxia, et cetera. So if the patient is not stable enough for transport to OR and undergo surgery but needs some temporizing measures to stabilize fractures, consider doing the procedures in the bedside in the ICU if possible. So that would require coordination with different teams such as a trauma and orthopedic team and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, talk to the family about what we are planning. So I cannot overemphasize the importance of avoiding secondary brain injury. And we as anesthesiologists can impact the outcome. Just remember that. Mm. Thank you. So our CA2 resident, Dr. Sri, would like to know if you would monitor the ICP during the procedure. Absolutely. Uh, it is a very good question, I think. Um, so the latest guidelines published by the Brain Trauma Foundation in 2016 
um, she recommends that ICP monitoring uh, to reduce in-hospital and two-week post-injury mortality. That's level 2B evidence. They monitor that ICP should be monitored in all traumatic brain injury patients with a GCS of 3 to 8 and an abnormal CT scan. So, yeah, definitely I would recommend um, monitoring ICP. And uh, the gold standard and one of the more accurate methods of measuring ICP is the external ventricular drain, or EVD, mm -hmm. with a strain gauge transducer. The advantage of EVD is that it also allows for drainage of CSF to reduce intracranial volume and thereby ICP. You know there are other methods that you can use to monitor ICP, such as epidural, subdural, um, but intraparenchymal monitors such as Cordman is one of the more common mm. monitors that are used, which allows continuous ICP monitoring. When talking about monitoring, should we opt for brain oxygen tension monitoring? Yes, um, you know there are uh, some advantages and um, disadvantages for brain oxygen tension monitoring. Is you know so ICP and CPP gives us certain numbers but we don't know the actual brain oxygenation per se, and that is the important part we're looking at, right? So there are some monitors right. out there called LICOX, which measures the interstitial brain tissue oxygen, and there are some newer monitors, which is like three-in-one um, white matter catheter that measures ICP, temperature, and brain tissue oxygenation, and we get some real-time feedback guiding the therapy. In any monitor, just remember these are just monitors. It, you know, it, it gives us information and you have to question whether the information is useful and what we, the difference can be what we do with the information. Mm. True. Could you give us some pearls regarding transportation of this patient from the intensive care unit to the operating room? Sure. Um, so, you know, this is a you know, very important topic that, you know, many of us kind of overlook, but it is very mm. critical that in, when we transport a patient from, um, from the ICU to the operating room in a critically ill patient, this can lead to some adverse events if not done properly. And the incidence of adverse events um, varies and it is actually, you know, the numbers are pretty staggering, anywhere from 30 to 50 percent, but the, but the most commonly reported um, adverse events are hemodynamic instability and ventilation-related events. So in a patient with traumatic brain injury and high intracranial pressure, special care to, should be taken to avoid anything that can lead to increase in ICP. Patients should be adequately sedated to avoid agitation and coughing and straining during transfer. And then, so sedation with muscle relaxation during transport is a great idea, but you have to be sure that we don't induce hypotension with, when you give that sedative agents. So treat hypotension promptly and have all the drugs needed for transport and management easily accessible. So the, again, the Brain Trauma Foundation have some very good guidelines that um, we can follow that they recommend the systolic blood pressure goal of over 100 millimeters of mercury for patients 50 to 69 year age group, over 110 for patients 15 to 49 or 70 years old. Then the other, you know, simple things that we sometimes tend to forget, keep the patient's mm -hmm. um, head of the bed elevated, avoid tight tapes around patient's necks, you know, such as ETT tapes, tight C collar. Yeah. These could impair venous drainage. 
And then, mm. of course, maintaining adequate ventilation to avoid hypoxia and hypercarbia. The other thing if the, to remember is if the patient has an EVD, this should be very carefully managed to minimize the risk of it being pulled out during transfer. And, um, you know, you need to, if you have to keep it open to avoid ICP rise, keep a very close eye on the amount that we drain. And, but if, if the patient can tolerate EVD being clamped during transport, it may be safe to do that. Right. Looks like transport is really important in these yes, patients. Yes, it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how would you manage raised intracranial pressure in traumatic brain injury? Um, again, you know, the, the, inter the traumatic brain injury is a very complex, uh, has a very complex pathophysiology, and, and because of the varied mechanisms of injury and pathophysiology and patient characteristics, the therapeutic interventions can be um, different. Um, so it, these um, therapeutic interventions can be guided by advanced neuromonitoring, which we talked about, like, you know, brain tissue oxygenation, sober perfusion pressures. Um, right. So initial treatment includes head of the bed elevation over 30 degrees, sedation and analgesia to prevent agitation, which we talked about already, CSF drainage. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that's considered the first-year therapy. Once first-year th therapy fails, you can do other things like, you know, osmotic diuretics, mannitol at 0.25 to 1 gram per kilo to decrease right. ICP. And the latest uh, Brain Trauma Foundation guideline recommends restricting mannitol um, prior to ICP monitoring to patients with transtentorial herniation, not just anybody who's got a TBI. So, um, you know, they're recommending restricted, or if you can hold off until after ICP monitoring, do that. Again, remember to avoid hypotension as mannitol can cause major diuresis and hypovolemia. The other um, um, osmotic diuretic or um, hypotonic saline is indicated when patients are refractory to mannitol therapy and continues to have elevated ICP. So one of the most commonly used concentrations are 3% and 23.4% in the U.S. Okay. It has the advantage of reducing ICP without the rebound rise in ICP, and it augments CPP, cerebral mm -hmm. blood flow, and brain oxygen tension. So hypertonic saline can be administered as intermittent boluses or as an infusion, um, but it has to be guided by serum sodium levels. So monitor serum sodium levels, and if it's over 160, you know, withhold the hypertonic saline. The other things that we commonly do is hyperventilation. It can help temporarily, but we know that prolonged hyperventilation with PaCO2 less than 25 millimeters of mercury is not recommended. In fact, it can cause the opposite. It can cause brain ischemia. The other things mm -hmm. that can be done, um, you know, barbiturate has been used in the past to induce burst suppression as a prophylaxis, but that is not recommended as um, anymore. Um, it is recommended only after all the standard medical and surgical options have failed. So those are the main yeah. things that, yeah. Yeah. So with the hypertonic saline, uh, do you need to use a central line to administer them, or can we do a peripheral? Yeah, so if it is, you know, if you don't have access to a central line and the patient is already maxed out on the mannitol and not seeing, you seeing the benefit and you don't mm. have access to the patient, if you have a good peripheral IV, like a high, you know, 16 or a 14 gauge IV, okay. you can use it for a short period of time. 
But I wouldn't use 23.4%. I, you know, limited 3%. Yeah. Okay, got it. Now, uh, coming to this controversial topic, is there any benefit of therapeutic hypothermia in the situation? Yes, you know, it's a good question again. You know, this has been a very controversial topic. Hypothermia has been thought to be beneficial, but um, the evidence is kind of controversial. The, the latest Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines and type 2B evidence again does not recommend early, that means within two and a half hours of injury or within 48 hours post-injury. But having said that, a recent meta-analysis of therapeutic hypothermia and TBI published uh, last year in critical care medicine concluded that it is likely beneficial um, in adults following TBI, but, um, you know, they showed decreased mortality as well as morbidity, but uh, increased mortality in children. So not recommended in children, but can be used in adults. But, again, that's Mm. a controversial thing. Um, But we know for sure we definitely want to work to avoid hyperthermia, and it should it should be avoided at all costs. Got it. So this other question is about the SAFE study. Uh, yeah. It looks like they concluded that albumin is associated with a higher mortality in TBI. If this patient coming for an orthopedic surgery, he may have a lot of blood loss. Would you avoid albumin? Uh, so SAFE study, again, you know, uh, published in 2007, uh, did a post hoc analysis on a subset of critically ill patients and, who received mm. 4% albumin, and um, they did show that the outcome was worse in patients who received 4% albumin um, compared to um, saline. So, but, um, you know, there's been some controversy about that, but to summarize multiple studies, I would say, you know, there is really... Uh, minimal indication for albumin use. Mm-hmm. Um, what about steroids? Are they contraindicated in these patients? Oh, yeah, that that is one thing for clearly, you know, uh, defined okay. in multiple studies okay. have shown that steroids did not, uh-huh. does not help. In fact, it is in, associated with increased mortality and is contraindicated. Hmm. Okay. Uh, is there any particular reason why that is so? Does it contribute to higher chance of infection or any yes, other reason? Yes, yeah. You know, it, okay. it does. Yes, it does, yeah. Okay. Um, so how would we troubleshoot if this patient develops hypotension associated with hypoxia in the operating room? So one should follow the usual algorithm that we all use in any case when we do patients undergo, you know, any surgery, whether they have... Um, abdominal surgery or neurologic procedure, if the patient develops hypotension and hypoxia, we go through our usual algorithm. Uh, but in patients mm-hmm. with polytrauma, we go above and beyond that. You know, these patients could have chest injuries such as hemothorax, pneumothorax, hemoneumothorax. They could have aspiration pneumonia, um, atelectasis, inadequate oxygen delivery due to hypotension itself. So all this can lead to hypoxia. So check for adequacy of ventilation, look for, um, you know, what your FiO2 is, send um, arterial blood gases to determine your adequacy of ventilation. But in this particular patient who may have long bone fractures, fat embolism should be high on your uh, differential diagnosis, which, you, you know, all of us know that this can lead to hypoxia and hypotension. 
Right. Like, so as you said, uh, it is really important to prevent secondary neurologic injury. Absolutely. I think that is that the you know hypoxia, hypotension, hyp- uh, hypercarbia, all these can lead to secondary mm. brain injury, and we should work to minimize any incidence of that happening during surgery and anesthesia. Sure. Now, should we extubate this patient at the end of the procedure or leave the patient in the ICU intubated? So it, it, that depends on the severity of TBI and the patient's ability to protect the airway, the hemodynamic stability, and other factors, right? So that, again, goes with every other case that, you know, most of the cases that we do. If the patient had a pretty significant TBI and he was or she was unconscious when we picked the patient up from ICU, it is unlikely that the condition has improved enough for extubation, right? But if the TBI is mild and the patient was fall on commands and hemodynamically stable and is able to maintain an airway and protect his airway, we can extubate provided they are, you know, they follow the standard extubation criteria. But that depends on the severity of TBI. Sure. So well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. And thank you so much, Lata, for this enlightening discussion. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to participate in this.